Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible Q&A, episode 5. We're in the month of May, so exciting times for all of us. Uh, this episode, if you don't know, is a little bit of a special one where we uh, answer questions that you all send in. So thank you so much uh, for sending in your questions. Yeah, you know what they say, April showers bring May Q&A episodes of Let's Read the Bible and hard questions for me and Evan to answer. That is the saying. But uh, as just a quick reminder, if you want to send in questions, you can uh, send them in uh, to our email address, info at grove.church. You can also reach out via Facebook. Um, if you have our numbers, you can text us, whatever it is, uh, get your questions out there and we would love to answer them. Yeah, we obviously can't get to every single question um, that every single week. And so that's actually why we've decided to do these podcasts. And I know we say that every single month, but this week um, we're excited. Well, I guess this month, because yeah. this is a monthly Q and a bonus episode, bonus episode. Um, we're excited. There's some great questions in here. Um, Evan, let's just hop into it. All right. So question one that we got, this is actually, uh, this is again, we say it's every Q and a episode, but this is a fun one because I've never put much thought into it uh, until we got the question in there. So this is going to be honest. Um, I think I totally skipped over this thing, like in the Bible, because when we were rereading it, mm-hmm. um, I didn't know, like, I it just it was like it was like a new information. Yeah, you know what I mean. I never really ever thought of it, and I just kind of threw it away, I guess, when I was reading the story. But yeah, well, let me read. Let's read the question first, so people uh, don't get confused. But, but it's tantalizing. So, question one: uh, What is the book of Jasher or Yasher, however you want to pronounce that, with a soft J? So with a soft J. Uh, and then he goes on to say, my Google search wasn't very helpful other than saying it's a book of the just man and people have claimed forgeries are the real thing. And so uh, this was actually a really interesting thing because, yeah, like I said, we've read it before, but I kind of just skip over it as like like I just didn't put any thought into yeah. it. So um, the book of Jasher is mentioned twice in the Bible. It's mentioned in Joshua 10, 13, and it's also mentioned in uh, in 2 Samuel 1, 18. Now, what's interesting about this is that in Joshua, it's referenced as a book that exists and talks about um, some type of a hero of Israel in the past, right? Mm-hmm. In Second Samuel, it actually talks about um, in the book of Joshua is recorded a song that David writes when Jonathan dies. Hmm. So, uh, what we can infer from that is it's it's some type and. Just a quick side note: We're not going to have any concrete answers on this because the the book is lost to history, and we'll get to that. So we're kind of we just have to infer um, from what we have. But from from those two references, what we can get what we can get out of it is that it's some type of a poetic book that is basically a retelling of heroes of Israel's history. Um, and we can also glean that it was added to over time. So in other words, when Joshua references it, it's not this completed book, um, but it's probably some type of chronicle of some of Israel's heroes that was added to over time. And then um, as history went on, it was lost to us. So yeah, it's like, it, I mean, I, from the research that I've done, it's basically a history book. Yeah. Um, but not in like a traditional sense, like you were saying, like a poetic telling, um, uh, what do they call those? An epic tale or yeah, something an like epic that? poem, an epic poem. Yeah. Like the Iliad or the Odyssey or something like something that. of that nature. That's what a lot of scholars believe. Um, but yeah, when, I mean, you read the Odyssey and you read the Iliad, you can gain um, insight into like human experience, stuff like that. And I think that's kind of what um, this has been uh, for the Israelites, essentially. Yeah. And so uh, there's a couple books of Jasher that are available today. Yasher, however you want to say it. Um, and but yeah, so like the question gets at, uh, both of those are pretty obviously forgeries. One of them was written in the 1800s and so completely – 
it's it's fake. Um, the other one is actually written in Hebrew, but um, when scholars look at it, it's pretty obvious that this isn't the original book that people are talking yeah, about. Like it's crazy that English was the writing medium of the day um, in David's. Listen, time. Jesus spoke in the King James. How dare you? <laughs> but, um, so, anyways, that being said, the actual book is lost to history to us. There's a few forgeries, so if you see those floating around, um, just know that it's not the actual book of Jasher. And then I guess the final question that wasn't really raised, but I guess just to go over it really quick is that um, we would not believe that this book is inspired. Um, But, and and this is where we can kind of get, it's interesting. Um, When we say that books are inspired, not inspired, that doesn't mean that books are not true. For instance, there's, um, there's a lot of, if you go through and read history books where they're just straight fact recording events, well, that's all true. Mm -hmm. We also wouldn't say that it's inspired by God. Um, A lot of the stuff in the book of Jasher is true. And certainly the stuff that is quoted in the Bible, we would believe um, is a true thing that actually happened. But that being said, if like, say somehow we unearthed the book of Jasher, I don't think it would be added into canon. It would just be kind of, it'd be a really cool archaeological find. Yeah. It's um, there's another book that or not, not even really a book, but it's um, what a lot, what a lot of Bible historians uh, point to and use. Uh, There's this guy named Josephus. And um, he was there in the Bible times, and he was recording a lot of the Jewish history. When, um, around when Jesus around was alive. When Jesus, yeah, sorry. Around when Jesus was alive, not in the Old Testament. And he basically, it's kind of funny, he um, he saw what Rome was doing to the Jewish people, and he said, hey, don't kill me. Um, I will take your history down because I can write. And he writes accurate, true things, but we also don't pull spiritual truth out of it yeah. because it's not inspired, though it's accurate. So, so, there you, so there you go. Hope that answers uh, your question. And thank you for that one. That was a really fun one to uh, be able to do some research on. Uh, question two is uh, Caleb's daughter asks for more land in Judges chapter one, which to me was a bit odd until I discovered the same story also appears in Joshua chapter 15. Usually when stories appear in more than one place, it's considered important. So what is the value of this story? Um, and so just kind of recap, if you don't remember, it is one of those quick, like a couple sentences and then it's over. So it's, it's a very easy one to miss. Uh, so remember Joshua and Caleb are really the leaders of Israel in the book of Joshua, Joshua being the main leader and Caleb also leading his tribe. They're going through, they're conquering Canaan. You might remember them as the two of the 12 spies who weren't complete wimps when they went into, uh, to scout out the land of Israel. And so at one point, uh, Caleb is taking hold of his land. He's from the tribe of Judah. Um, he's actually given a little bit extra because he was, he's was he been faithful for so long. And his daughter, who um, was obviously very loved by him, gets married to a man named Othniel, who we'll get to. Well, actually, we've already read about Othniel because we've been going through judges. So if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the first judge of Israel. At this point, though, he wasn't that. And there's a story that his daughter, and I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, but I think it's Aksa. So, That's what I was thinking. Aksa? Okay, yeah. cool. So it all fun fact, it means uh, ankle bracelet in Hebrew. So <laughs> there you go. Um, but his daughter comes and asks uh, for basically extra land. So he, um, Caleb already gifted her and Othniel a plot of land, but there wasn't much water access to it is what it seems like. And so she asks for more land, land with springs, um, basically more fertile land that they can use to really, you know, keep cattle, um, raise crops, all these different things. And so Caleb gives it to her. So on the surface, this story does not seem very important. Um, and I would, I would actually argue, 
Um, the reason it's repeated is not necessarily because it's one of these major um, climactic moments of the Bible that we need to keep in mind, but because in the person's lives that these two books are talking about, these are really important moments. And so remember, the book of Joshua is concerned with telling the story of Joshua and then to a lesser extent, Caleb. So in the life of Caleb, the reason this story is important is because it shows Caleb to be a loving father who does not give, uh, who's not turn away good gifts from his children. And so his daughter comes, she asks, you know, I, I need more land. This land that you've given us isn't really as fertile as we need it to be. And Caleb, instead of getting angry or instead of saying like, how dare you ask me for more? Um, he really responds like a loving father and says, you know what? You're right. Here's more land. And so it gives us an insight into who Caleb is. Um, in the book of Judges, they are not concerned with telling the story of Caleb. They're concerned with telling the story of the judges. And Othniel is one of the uh, the first judges. So from that perspective, what this story tells us is not that Othniel is a loving father, because obviously that's not his place in the story. But what it does show us is that um, Othniel, who is obviously a very strong man, I don't mean strong physically, but although he probably was. Maybe. But, yeah, maybe. Um, but <laughs> He had a lot a, of land. He's a strong leader who the Bible talks about how he's filled with just the spirit of God. And he goes forward and he defeats Israel's enemies. He's the first judge that God raises up. It's a really, uh, really great story, even though it's one of the shorter passages that we have on a judge. But it shows that behind Othniel is a really strong woman as well. And so she sees a problem. She goes to her father and she says, hey, like we need more land. And we, the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, so I want to be careful, but we can kind of infer that um, because he has better land because they have better land. They can have more cattle. They can have more crops. They can accrue a little bit more wealth. And when God raises him up to deliver the people of Israel, he probably has more influence than he would have had if he just had the smaller portion of land. And a lot of that is because um, his wife was just strong and able to um, support him, which is a, which is a great thing. Yeah. And I think with that, even like we, we look culturally, even like, let's, let's strip, like if this story was not about, you know, the Jewish people, we just look through human history and um, just what, what more land and more wealth meant. It meant you had more influence, right? That's just a fact. Um, And so with this, it definitely, um, you know, remove the spiritual side of this with, with God appointing Othniel he literally probably had more than most. So that automatically put him at a different level, a different stature in the society. Uh, and then on top of that, with God's blessing and his calling him to be the judge, um, it works hand in hand with, with his authority and the anointing of God. All of that really, it almost gives him instant buy-in with everybody around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. So anyways, that's uh, that's our answer to the question. It's obviously it's a little bit more subjective of a question, so I, don't want, I want to be careful and not say like objectively, this is why. But, no, um, it's black and white. Yeah. So I'm just, just kidding. Uh, but in looking into it, that's kind of where we landed on it. Yeah. And uh, the third question, um, this is a fun one. We are going to be opening up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 18. And in this... Um, Paul is writing to the book, uh, the church at Colossae, and um, short and sweet, he says not to worship angels. And the question here is, in Colossians 2.18, it says not to worship angels. The Catholic Church seems to uh, favor praying to the saints. So what is the difference? Um, 
here's the deal, and and I'm gonna take some stuff from Evan's notes as well. So if you're planning on you know writing you know just speaking this straight up, don't worry about it. I got you. Oh, thanks. Bro. Um, the worship of angels seems to be a struggle in a lot of polytheistic cultures. Polytheistic means poly, which is many. Theistic means gods. So polytheistic means many gods, um, and especially in um, the church in Colossae very heavily influenced by Roman culture, that entire um well, in Greek culture. In Greek culture, excuse me. Both yeah. of them, yeah. Both yeah. And um and in this, they had gods for everything. Gods for sun, gods for water, gods for, you know, land and for fertility, all of it. And so this was really easily bleeding into the Colossian church. And as if you remember, when we went over the book of Colossians, the the Colossian church was dealing with um, a strange form of mysticism, um, which taught basically that Jesus wasn't the son of God. He was just a higher being or an angel. And so if you think of this in in this passage in this, when Paul is saying, hey, um, don't worship angels. Because we don't worship angels, we worship Jesus who who died and rose again. We can start to paint the picture of okay, maybe it's not talking specifically generally or <laughs> specifically generally. Maybe it's not talking generally about worshiping angels. Um, it can even be translated as, "Hey, you're saying you're worshiping angels, but we don't worship angels. Right. We worship Jesus." And it can be a yeah for for a polytheistic culture and, and keep in mind when we're reading the Bible, almost every culture that's not Israel is polytheistic that we run into. Like the Philistines worship, um, we're reading through them in Judges, right? They're on they live on the coast. They worship the sea god because they come from you know they they migrated from somewhere else in the Mediterranean. You see this in like different places, and oftentimes, especially in this place, the um, the cities are named after gods, like Athena or Athens is named yeah. after Athena. Um, we get those kind of areas, and so. It would make sense that if you come and are raised into a, a polytheistic culture and you hear the story of the gospel, you can easily think like, oh, so like God is like Zeus, where he's the yeah, head of the gods and the angels are like the other gods. Yeah. And so – And they're still powerful. And so I can ask them for help. Yeah. And even though like, you know, in, in within Greek mythology, like, you know, Zeus is the, the chief god – Everyone worshiped different gods. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, then that's kind of where you can see, uh, where you can see where it comes from. Yeah, and that's why, and that's honestly why Paul takes such a strong stance on Jesus being the. Um, I think, man, I I don't want to go out and quote scripture if I'm not 100 percent positive on its in Colossians, but I'm pretty sure he says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That's in Colossians, isn't it? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. But Regardless, Paul says this in a culture that polytheism is running rampant. And so when he says Jesus is the the visible image of the invisible God, he is saying, hey, like you don't need to, you know, worship all of these other things because he's not an angel. He's not a supreme being. He is God. Yes, Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him holds all things together. You got to stop at verse 19 for our last question. You want to keep – oh, yeah, 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 you're not wrong. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. But so then let's go back into the question is – the Catholic Church seems to favor praying to the saints. So, what is the difference? That was the chief question here, right? And the Catholic Church pulls a scripture from Revelation chapter five, verse eight, um, 
and where John depicts the saints in heaven offering, and and I actually pulled this straight off of um, the Catholic Church website because I, you know, I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to go right to the source. Yeah, when we when we were both doing research for it, we looked at actual Catholic sources of yeah. what they believe about this. Yeah, and and um, so this is quoting literally from the Catholic Church, Revelation five chapter, excuse me, verse, <sighs> Revelation chapter five verse eight, where John depicts the saints in heaven offering our prayers to God under the form of golden bowls full of incense. Now this is a quote, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. But if the saints are in heaven are offering our prayers to God, then they must be aware of our prayers. They do it out of tra- And so basically what, what this tells me is that the Catholic church does this out of tradition. And uh, it's from one verse in the Bible. And here's the deal. The difference here is that the church at Colossae was dealing with that form of mysticism of saying, you know, um, we're praying to angels because we're praying to Jesus who we believe is an angel. Uh, Along with this, I don't know. I just think that it's not that they're praying to the saints. It's almost as if they're praying through the saints to have them pray for them as well. Yeah. So I would say that um, these two things are not connected. And so they can yeah. sound similar, like praying to angels, praying to saints. Um, but when you're talking about praying to angels, we, we I mean, we talked about so you don't need to rehash it, but that's what was going on in that culture. Uh, for today's culture, <coughs> the idea is not that you pray directly to saints and that, you know, Saint Jude helped me with this, but rather you're praying to saints, asking them to pray for you. Yeah. Um, and where we get that from is, okay, so obviously in Revelation, it's revealed um, that saints intercede in prayer for things that are going on in on earth. And when we say saints there, it also, I want to be clear, um, the Bible doesn't have this category of saint where there's like super Christians. Um, when it says saint, it just means believers. So Christians yeah. uh, who have who have died are praying and interceding. What I, what I would say is I think it's um, dubious at best to say that Good we word. can, thank you, that we can pray directly to saints and have them hear our prayers. But let's even set that aside. And let's yeah. say, for instance, that that's true and can happen. Um, like why? Yeah. And, and, and a, a huge part of the Bible is really, or of the new Testament specifically is this idea that, you know, there's no longer a priest that we have to go through to have a relationship with God, but we actually have a direct line of communication. When we pray, we have a direct line of communication with God. There's no reason to pray and ask saints to pray for us, even if that's possible. And then also, um, there's no extra value to the prayers of um I don't know of like a famous saint who's not in the Bible, but you, you know, there's no Anselm. I, uh, I was said Josephus, but he's not one. No, he's, he's not historian. Yeah, let's go like Saint Augustine, right? Um, there's no Saint Francis of Assisi. There you go, Saint Francis. One. There's no extra. Of, let's say he could hear. Um, God doesn't listen to his prayers more than if I asked Connor to pray for me, like, Hey man, I'm going through some stuff. Can you just keep me in your prayers? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, God hears Connor's prayers too. And yeah. so I would say if, if you're wanting people to pray for you, just go to humans that you have relationship join with a small right now. Group. Yeah. Join a small group, whatever it is. Um, and then don't think that you have to pray through other people for yeah. God to hear your prayers. Like that's the point of prayer is that we can talk with God. Yeah, and I think um, it's also important to pay attention to the emphasis of this verse because I feel like we're paying attention to the the don't pray to angels. Right. Um, when Paul's entire purpose of this, um, he puts a huge emphasis on false humility and missing out on the blessing of God. And so when you do that, and you know, just it, it gets it gets weird when when you let let's just strip it all down. When you view Jesus wrongly, it gets weird. 
and and it can raise up some weird just beliefs and weird ways of doing church. And so when Paul is saying this, he's like, hey, like, you don't only need to not pray to angels, but you also need to be more concerned with having your false humility as somebody who is just so holy or, um, you know, so humble. Like I'm the most humble person you'll ever meet. Number one on the humble list. Number one on the humble list. And so, um, yeah, with that, it's a great question. Um, very interesting. Um, but yeah, we wouldn't necessarily say those are connected. Right. Um, so final question. And this is actually, this is a really fun one, uh, not for research, but I think it's kind of just a different question that we got asked. Um, you've been doing this for about six months. What is your favorite verse in the sections that we've covered that you have not read on the podcast and why is it your favorite? So in other words, what's something that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet that was in a book that we've been reading through that we would want to bring up? And so uh, I guess I'll go first and then Connor goes second. Obviously, we have different answers for this. And so... One of my favorite passages of the Bible, and it was funny because I was looking through and I had to check, like, did we do this? And when I realized we did, I was like, what the heck? We didn't read through uh, the last chapter of John. In the in the last chapter of John, John chapter 21, we get this really beautiful picture of um, what is going on with Jesus after he's risen from the dead. And so Jesus uh, is still on earth at this point. He, has this, he hasn't ascended to heaven. He's been going around, he's been talking to the disciples, and he meets up with a group of disciples. And so for context, I'm actually just going to read a lot because I, I think it's a beautiful passage of scripture. Um, but for context, just keep in mind during this point that this is after Peter has denied Jesus three times after um, he said, you know, I'm going to stick with you no matter what happens. And Jesus tells him, well, listen, before the sun even comes up, before the rooster crows three times, you are going to betray me. Peter says, no way it happens. And then as best we can tell, uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they went back to their lives as fishermen after the death of Jesus. And here's what happened. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing. Then as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off of land, but, up, but about but a about hundred yards. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you caught. So just as a real quick aside during this, remember the first time that Jesus meets Peter pretty much this exact story happens where Peter, they, they've been fishing all day. They haven't caught anything. Jesus comes and he says, Hey, put the nets on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden they get a ton of fish. And so it's, this, I think it's this beautiful picture of Jesus almost, almost giving them a fresh start in yeah. a really symbolic way of saying like, almost reintroducing himself as it were. Like, obviously they know him. And then it says that Peter's so excited that it's the Lord. When it says he cast himself into the sea, that doesn't mean like he like drowned himself. Like it's saying like he was so excited. He didn't want to wait for the boat to 
get turned around and go back in. He literally jumped into the ocean or the sea and uh, began to swim for shore. Uh, so in verse 11, it says, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Mm-hmm. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. There was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love these more than do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by the the type of death that he was to glorify God. And after he said to this, after he said this, follow me. And I think it's just this really amazing picture of the grace of God. And so again, if you catch it, it, um, if you didn't catch it, Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And, and Peter affirmatively answers, Lord, you know you know that I love you. And it's almost this, this whole story is really wiping the slate clean for Peter. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus reintroducing himself symbolically. He's doing the exact same miracle, the first one that Peter ever saw. And then Peter, who is, who is so racked with guilt about the fact that he denied Jesus, that he went back to his life as a fisherman, like that seems to be what's going on. He just, yeah. he just went home. Knowing that Jesus had risen at this point, he went home um, and Jesus is telling him, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to do things. I'm calling you into ministry. And he's basically telling him like your sin of denying me is, is forgiven. It's just a beautiful passage. And I am bummed that we didn't, uh, yeah. that we didn't read through it. And well, so we're going through it again. So maybe we will. That's true. Yeah. So thank you uh, for sending in that question. That was awesome. Yeah. And for me, um, I'm not sure if I, I shared the story of reading this passage in Starbucks with a lady and just got super emotional and she tried to comfort me. And um, she was like, what are you reading? I was like the Bible. And she got kind of crazy and I looked over and she was reading 50 shades of gray. So she felt kind of, (laughs) kind of uh, awkward. Um, But my favorite verse, which I rudely interrupted Evan from reading earlier is uh, Colossians one, 19 through 20. Um, And really, I think this just, there's just certain verses that you read that just stick with you in times of trial in times of frustration, all of it. There's just certain things that really speak to you. And, um, and this is one of those where it was a time in my life where, um, man, I was just, I don't know. I I think I was at a place where I just, I didn't really fully believe and not believe, but like accept, um, God's grace, right? And in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, it gives us a picture of, you know, Jesus didn't go to the cross begrudgingly. Right. He didn't go to the cross wishing, like he he prays a prayer, God, if this is your will, let your will be done. But if it's not, take this cup of suffering away from me. And that's not, we don't read that as Jesus trying to find a way out. 
but Colossians, what the way Paul states it, it's so amazing, and it, and it gets me every single time because there's a couple words in here that I think are just so important, and it's verse 19 through 20. It says, for God in all of his fullness was pleased, was pleased. It wasn't out of um, you know compulsion. It wasn't out of, um, well, they messed up again, so I better go down there and fix it. He was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And that picture of God being pleased to die for us, sending his son Jesus to die for us and was pleased about it, that speaks to how much his love is for us. That's incredible. It speaks to how deep his love is for us. Paul even says in in another um, you know, in another book, he he says like in Romans, he he says, we could understand how somebody would die for a decent person, but not for someone like us. So for God to be pleased to send his son Jesus to die for us in the midst of our sin, our decrepit ways, yet was still happy to do so, it just it, it's a great reminder that, man, I mess up and I don't deserve the grace. Um, and that's not an excuse to like, you know, like continue it. But at the same time, God's love for us is so great that even in the midst of our f- sin and our failures, he was still pleased to die for us. Yeah. No, what an incredible truth to remember. And actually, uh, our episode coming up on Sunday, we're going to talk more about that theme uh, because one of the chapters that we're going through deals with that. And so just a little, a little tease for uh, the episode coming up in a couple, in a so couple stay days. Tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, but, you know, thank you so much for sending in your questions. These are some of our favorite episodes to do just because we get to um, really just dialogue about the parts of the Bible that are most interesting to us, um, even the questions that we have. And so uh, I would just say, you know, thank you all for listening. Our next episode is dropping uh, on Sunday, so in a couple days. And uh, you know, stay tuned.